0: place. Uh, I have preached here before, but I want to say that it's something between 15 and 20 years ago. Uh, I didn't have any gray in my beard then, uh, so we're speaking about time this morning, as it is, uh, and I'm reminded of the passage of time, even standing here again. Well, I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 90. To Psalm 90, we'll be considering the psalm in its entirety We'll read the psalm and then ask the Lord to help us as we look into his word together. Psalm 90, this is the holy and the inspired and authoritative word of God. Let us give it our full attention. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight, are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood, they fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew, in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands yes, confirm the work of our hands. Let us pray. Our God in heaven, we even now approach you as we look into your word and we pray, God, that you would instruct our hearts by your spirit, that you would give us not the mere eyes of the flesh, but the eyes of faith to see and behold wondrous things from your law. We pray that you would not allow our hearts to be dulled by mere human reason, but that You would illumine our hearts and and kindle our understanding by the work of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we might perceive the truth of Your Word and that perceiving we might be stirred up to believe and to respond in faith to the words that are spoken. We pray that as we contemplate these words that You would teach us by Your Spirit and show us Your Son and build us up in our faith. For those that need to be rebuked by these words, Lord, may these words come as words not to kill, but to wound so as to awaken. For those that need consolation, who need their hearts encouraged, we pray that these would be words of consolation and of healing. Lord, make your word go forth now with power, we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. These are the words spoken in James 4.14 about the sobering brevity of life. And though we often marvel at how quickly time seems to fly by, it nevertheless seems to be the case at the same time that we have all the time in the world. In a couple of hours, this moment that we have together here will seem but the blink of an eye, though it may seem as we move through the text that the sermon is rather long. That's not, a, that's not a veiled threat or anything like that. Um, I, don't, I don't intend it to be rather long. But memory of time makes time seem so brief, while in the moment it seems that it goes on forever. We need frequent reminders of how truly fleeting life is. This is not meant to discourage us, but to stir us up to lay hold of that which really lasts. The time is short. Life is fleeting. There are things that endure and many that do not where is your heart? Though this life is fleeting, few of days and full of trouble, Job 14.1 says, perhaps some of you can attest to that in your own life, few of days and full of trouble. Yet, for this reason, this life is not unconcerned with eternity. A short, brief, misty, vaporous life, what use is it of great use? What importance is it brief as it is, still of great importance. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God sets eternity in the heart of every man. Not just Christians, but unbelievers alike know that they were built to last for more than just this life. For those who aren't trusting the Lord or laying up treasures in heaven, that's a dreadful thought. The thought that this will end and then they will give an account to the one with whom they have to do. Man finds his true good and his abiding home in something other than this short-lived breath of life. Jesus instructs us in Matthew 6 to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither uh, moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. The laying up of treasure is the work of this life. The preparing for eternity is what you do today. This moment, while brief and short and fleeting, is still of great significance. In Psalm 90, we have the words of Moses. The only psalm of Moses in the Psalter, most of the psalms were written by King David. Sometimes you find others, sons of Korah, sons of Asaph. Uh, here we have one from Moses. Now Moses, you don't usually associate as a songwriter. David with his heart, perhaps you think of him writing songs. But Moses writes songs. Exodus 15 is a song of Moses. We're told in the book of Revelation that even in the future we will sing the song of Moses, and then it adds, and of the Lamb, a psalm of victory over God's enemies, a song of redemption that will one day be sung, so to speak, in the key of Jesus. That's what we do. Moses writes songs. Moses writes of redemption. Moses prepares us to sing praises, but Moses also, as the great lawgiver, also prepares us to take account of ourselves before a holy God. This psalm of Moses in its middle portion is rather severe. We've read its words already, and if you were listening, perhaps you heard some rather grim things being said in the middle of this psalm. Death and judgment, though, are neither the first word in this psalm nor the last. It begins high, it ends high, but in the middle we need to go low to appreciate the heights of the beginning and the end of the psalm. Moses begins by directing our attention toward the home that endures, which is God Himself. He then considers how far humanity has fallen from this eternal dwelling. He then shows us what real spiritual homelessness and waywardness looks like. And then finally, he lights the way back home to God through a series of hopeful petitions. So I want to follow the instruction of God through Moses Uh, in this psalm by four considerations, and I'll just take these four considerations as an outline to work through the psalm together. First, we'll consider an eternal dwelling, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we'll consider a brief journey, verses 3 through 6. And then thirdly, we'll consider a hard journey, verses 7 through 11. And then finally, we'll consider the way back home, verses 12 through 17. Going in the first place then, let's consider an eternal dwelling in verses 1 and 2. The psalmist begins, Lord, You have been our dwelling place. Some translations might say refuge. Uh, You have been our dwelling place, our domicile, our habitation in all generations. Moses begins with a prayer to God in which believers are reminded of the fact that they are sojourners and pilgrims upon the earth. Moses himself never stepped foot in the promised land. Moses himself never got home, so to speak. He was raised in Pharaoh's court, as you know, and then spent 40 years in exile in the Sinai Peninsula, shepherding sheep uh, for his father-in-law Jethro, and then was sent back to lead the people of Israel out, and he led them out. But due to their disobedience, the Lord consigned them to 40 years more of exile and wandering in the wilderness, and because of his own disobedience, Moses never got to set foot in the promised land, though he did look in from afar. Moses writes as a pilgrim. Moses is never really home. Moses is never where he belongs, and neither are the people for whom he writes. He points them to an eternal dwelling place, a habitation for all their generations, and it's a strange habitation. Let us just say that at the outset. It's a strange habitation. He says, you, O Lord, have been our dwelling place. Not Canaan, not the temple or the tabernacle as it was at that time, but God himself. Our dwelling place is most profoundly a a someone more than a somewhere. It's It's a who, not a where, that most concerns us when it comes to where we belong. It is in fellowship and in the enjoyment of God himself that each one can say most truly, I am home. There's a little saying, sometimes you see it cross-stitched in someone's house, home is where your heart is. Home is where your heart is. If your heart is with God, and if your heart is entrusted to Him, and if your joy is in Him, and if your pleasure is in Him, then you are home. Even if you're wandering through this world, He is your dwelling place even as you wander. These words must have especially rung true in Moses' time. He nor his forebearers had ever possessed a land of their own. And even as you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs of Israel, even they never really planted their foot in a place where they could say, this is my home forever. Abraham, of course, was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and brought into the land of Canaan. But we're told that Abraham himself lived in tents along with Isaac and Jacob as a sojourner in the land of promise. A land of promise, but even a land of promise wasn't... Home yet. The land of promise was good. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was a land that was good for sojourning. It was a land that helped them anticipate heaven, but it wasn't the thing. It wasn't the final stop. It wasn't where they were going. It was a blessed accommodation on the way to somewhere else. You think of the language even in Hebrews 11, speaking about the faith of Abraham as he sojourned in the land of promise. And we read these words in Hebrews 11, verse 8. For by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, listen to what it says. He lived as an alien, an exile, a wanderer, in the land of promise. As in a foreign land. He was in Canaan, but he was a stranger still. He was in Canaan, but he was still a nomad, a tent dweller, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why wasn't he home? Why wasn't he home? Because home was not ultimately Canaan. The promised land of Canaan was, in a certain sense, a a vista, a lookout point, a kind of shadowy prefigurement of the real thing. What was the real thing? Listen to this in verse 10. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. In fact, in verse 15, it says that he was seeking a a better country. Verse 16 says, they sought a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. It's always been pilgrims. The land of Canaan was a land of sojourning. The land of Canaan was a pilgrimage. It was a stopping off place to give you a foretaste of home, but it wasn't the thing. It was just a sign. It was just a a pointer. What did Abraham seek? The friend of God? He sought God. He sought the dwelling place where he would dwell face to face and commune with God. Now, some might object that Abraham was looking for heaven, not so much God. He was looking for a different place, not God per se. Isn't that what Hebrews eleven sixteen? he was seeking a, a better country, and yet these two, to seek heaven and to seek God, are one of the same thing. If you want to go to heaven, but you're not so interested in God, I submit to you that it isn't heaven you're seeking. It's a sort of imposter place. It's not the place. Heaven. Heaven is a realm full of Refulgence of glory, bright light shining through that place. What is the light in heaven? What is the light in heaven? Revelation 21, in that vision, John says that he saw God seated on the throne and the lamb and that there was no light in that place, for God and the lamb are its light. And he says also, interestingly, that I saw no temple in that place, but not because it was temple-less. He says, but because God and the Lamb are its temple. So that the dwelling place with God and God your dwelling place ultimately converge. The temple, the dwelling with God isn't just a place that signifies it like the tent with some Shekinah glory shining in the Holy of Holies. The dwelling places with God is the place where God himself shines in brilliant light. To seek God and to seek heaven. To seek God and to seek to be home are one of the same thing. Are one of the same thing. What's he seeking? <clears throat> Permanence in the midst of transience. People traveling through, sojourning, looking for a place where they can say, this is my home. Here I stop. Here I sink my roots. From here I will not be moved. This life doesn't offer you that. This life doesn't offer you that. There's something about rootedness. I like rootedness. I like time in a place, history in a place. Um, there's something valuable about that. There's something honorable about that staying power. But don't be fooled. It's for a while, it's for a time. We're going somewhere else, we're going to be with God. Permanence amidst impermanence. For a sojourning people living in tents who never really felt like they were at home, this would be consolation. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, turning into verse 2, staying with our same point for a moment, we might ask ourselves, um, what sort of dwelling place is God? Is He a good dwelling place? Is He built to last? When you buy a home or place an offer on a home, you might often uh, pay someone to go in and do a home inspection for you. Many years ago, when we bought our first home in Philadelphia, uh, we had someone go in and do a series of examinations on the house. How, how is the roof? Uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, your roof needs to be able to stand up to heat. In Philadelphia, it needs to be able to stand up to rain. Uh, and to snow. Uh, how's the roof? Is it going to keep me dry? Um, how's the siding? There we have a lot of humidity. Is, it, is there mold? There we also have a lot of hard bedrock, very low below the surface. Is there any radon leaking out of that bedrock? Is this house built to last? Is there rot? Is there mold? How durable is it? Can I stay here with my family for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years? Does it endure? thinking along the lines of home inspection. Listen to this. God is your dwelling place in all generations. And you might think, I'd love to leave a home to my children. I'd love a home that I could pass on and say, this home has been in the family for five generations. How about this? How about a home for all generations forever? Listen to this in verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There are buildings in this world that are buildings of time, and they have endured a long time. The nave of the Westminster Abbey was built in 1050. They're having worship services in there today. I've attended a worship service there, an even song service, on a a Friday evening many years ago, um, in which all they did was read scripture and sing hymns. That was the whole service in the middle of a nave built in 1050. It's not even, a, it's a relic, but it's, it's a living place where the word is read and hymns of praise are sung. But 1050, if you get a little more further south in Europe, it gets older still. You can stand in the Pantheon in Rome, which is still a dome that is standing. Most modern domes in the world are, are patterned off of this. That dome has been holding up in place for 2,000 years. The Roman Catholics have had it for most of that time. They continue to have multiple services, such as they are, not commending it to you, uh, for your attendance, uh, every day. These things, these are old things. There are places in Macedonia where people live in stone houses that are more than 500 years old. They live there now. No central air or heat. I should just simply add that, Um, but built to last. Built to last. And yet here's the thing about even these places that are built to last. They're not eternal. They came to be, and they one day will be no longer. And even in their present condition, unless they are maintained, there's a sort of disrepair, a breaking down that you're always contending with. How is it with God your dwelling place? How is He? How about this? The hills the hills, and the mountains. Those are the things that you can see that really remain, aren't they? Those endure. Time comes and goes, and civilizations rise and fall, and the mountains sort of peacefully look down on all the affairs of men. The mountains remain. Listen to this. Before the mountains were born, because that's the kind of thing mountains are, they They come to be. Or you gave birth to the earth and the world. We could leave the mountains and and look at the heavens. The stars and the moon, the sun, were here long before you came. And they'll be here long after you go. And they were here long before the nave of the Westminster Abbey or the Pantheon in Rome. And yet, listen to this language of Psalm 102. Of old, verse 25, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed. He's talking about the things that are most enduring, the cosmos itself. But you, verse 20, Psalm 102, 27, but you are the same. Or it could even say, you are He, which is kind of probably a reference to I am. You, you aren't the was, you aren't the isn't yet, you're the ising one, the I am that I am. That's your habitation. Not old, interestingly. Not young. Is. That's God. God is the ancient of days, but not because he's old, but because his being proceeds all days from eternity. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 2. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is a somewhat ironic way of speaking. And I submit that the phrasing is maybe even deliberately odd to make the point. How could you be from everlasting? It seems like everlasting can't be what was, because how could it end? To everlasting, you might have the idea of forever and ever going forward, but forever, in other words, if he's God from everlasting to everlasting, everlasting can't be a past state of being. It just, otherwise wouldn't be everlasting. And I think this is actually the point. He speaks in a strange way. We talk about from way back when till way off in the future, but he actually says from everlasting to everlasting. This is the strange part of it. The from and the to are the same. You know what they are? It's God. God is of Himself and from no other. God is not of time. God is not built. In a real sense, God doesn't go through ages getting old but somehow remaining. God isn't touched by the vicissitudes of time and change. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away, but God is not one of its sons. You are. Get hold of Him. You You want that which lasts? Don't grab on to the old things of this earth. Even the hills, which have stood in order for many years, will be brought low and destroyed. Grab hold of the one who is not subject to the ravages of time. Do you want permanence now? You want endurance now? You want to hold something, an inheritance, and a possession now that cannot be taken away, where moth and rust do not destroy, it, where thieves do not break in and steal, and where the rising and falling of fortunes in this life have absolutely no effect upon it? Get hold of God. Get hold of him. You have been our dwelling place for all generations. What kind of dwelling place is he? Like no other. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Having considered that, let's go in the second place and this a bit more quickly, that our journey is a brief journey, a brief journey, verses 3 through 6. If God is from everlasting to everlasting, let us just simply say, you aren't, you aren't. And we get that very quickly in verse 3. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of man. If God's years do not come to an end, so to speak, the same cannot be said for our years in this life. Moses now challenges us with the reality that every human life is astonishingly short. Every human life is astonishingly short. Our allusions to the contrary notwithstanding, time is passing very quickly. First in verse 3, you can hear an echo of the language of Genesis 3.19. In Genesis 3.19, it says, "...for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Our verse 3 here says, uh, You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of man. Here's the thing about dust. Um, when your soul is removed from your body and your body lies in the grave, your material will metabolize and break down back into dust or soil. But is, it's not just... Here's the thing of it. It's not just the law of things. It's not just that's how it is. It's, it's, it's actually judgment. He says... Return. You turn man back into dust. You say, return, O children of men. In other words, it's not just the law of entropy. Things break down. People die. It's the way of things. We lay them in graves. Things go on. The cycle never ends. It's just the circle of life. It's not the circle of life. And death is not the way things naturally are. Death is divine judgment. Death is actually God's doing. Death Sends men to the grave rather than ascending into heaven, they descend into the grave, body separated from soul. Sometimes people say at a funeral, Death is just a part of life. I don't even know where to begin in response to that. That is so stupid. It's exactly not that. Death is not a part of life. Death is the cessation of life. Death isn't just the way things are. Death is the wages of sin. Things aren't good for the human race because we are all born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all born walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is at work in each of us by nature in our birth. And who sends you back to the grave? It's not just things break down. It's not just entropy. You send man back to the grave. You say, return, O children of dust. Charles Spurgeon says this, the frailty of man is thus forcibly set forth. God creates him out of dust, and back to dust he goes at the word of his creator. God resolves, man dissolves, a word created, and a word destroys. You say, return, O children of men, return to the dust. Verse 4 puts this forth in a very um, colorful amplification, uh, in which... While the world, while life might seem long and, and slow going to you, to God, it's not. Your life is short, but here's the thing. It's not just your life that's short in the scheme of human history. It's actually to God all of human history that is short. Look at verse 4. For a thousand years, by the way, no one lived to a thousand years. Methuselah got to 969. No one has lived a thousand years. Well, some redwood trees, but no one who knows God and enjoys him and has moral obligations to God has lived a thousand years. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. To God, the world is not old. To God, all is young. To God, all is of yesterday. Was I born yesterday? To God, the answer is yes, all were born yesterday. As if no time has passed. It's brief. It's a moment. To God, it's not old. A thousand years are like a watch in the night. A day when it passes with God strictly, there is no past and there is no future, there's fullness of being. But he speaks this way, in part, when he says, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, simply to make the point that yesterday seems shorter in our minds than tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to, and you know, 24 hours always seems like more when it's in front of you than when it's behind you. You know this? this, Maybe you feel it when you go on vacation in the summertime. You plan a week's vacation, and you plan what you're going to do with that week, and you're going to fill it up. And then, you know, at the end of the vacation, you're driving home. You say, I can't believe it's already over. It seems like it's going to stretch on forever. And then as soon as it's done, as soon as it's now in the bank of memory and not in the um, anticipation of the future, it seems like a moment. He says, that's what your life is. Think of your life more like you think of the past than like you think of the future as a breath, as a moment. Some of you have been around for decades, but you, you blink your eyes, you can kiss, I can't believe this is where I am, that I'm at this age. Fourth grade. Fourth grade. <laughs> Going over to the Redeem's house to swim in the swimming pool. That was the other day many decades have passed, and my children are older than I was at that time. It's a brief moment. You blink your eyes, it passes. Then changes the imagery here a little bit to make it uh, more even severe. He says, it's like a watch in the night. A watch in the night is three or four hours. You know how it is. You lay down your head at 12 a.m., you blink your eyes, and it's 7 a.m., and where did the time go? I once took a flight uh, from Newark, New Jersey, to Paris, and I closed my eyes, and it was it was New York out the window when I closed my eyes, and it felt like I had blinked. And when I opened them, it was the green fields of France. Seven hours um, had gone by, and I hadn't stirred. Um, would that you had flights like that? Anyway, uh, they, it was pleasant. Uh, but where did the seven hours go, and where did North America go? And I blinked my eye. That's your life. Your life is like that. Your life is passing much faster than you think it is. It is hurling by, and it feels like you've only just blinked your eyes, and it comes, and it goes. Now, it's not an exact ratio, a thousand to one. That's not what Moses is after. The point is this. um, that between eternity and time there is no proportion, Matthew Henry says, betwixt a minute and a million years there is some proportion, but betwixt time and eternity there is none. Long lives of the patriarchs were nothing to God, so much as the life of a child that is born and dies the same day is to them. In verse 5 he says, not only is time passing you by, but it's actually passing you by like a flood of judgment. Listen to this. You, speaking of God, you have swept them away like a flood. Now listen to this. This is what you don't want to do in a flood. They fall asleep. Listen. The world is perishing. The flood of judgment is carrying away the things of this world. This world is a present passing age. Don't miss the passing. It's passing quickly under divine judgment. These things won't last. This doesn't mean that we aren't grateful to God for life, breath, and all things. It doesn't mean that there aren't good things in the world even after the fall that we can be grateful for. It just means that we can't hold on to them like they're going to last forever because they aren't. He is. This world, like a flood, is being carried away. The unbeliever is sleeping through the flood. I don't know if you've seen videos like I have online of great flash floods. I saw one in Australia, from Australia a few years ago, and someone was in an in a office building, and the flash flood came, and they were taking a phone, sort of film, you know, looking out the window, filming the parking lot of the business park, and the flood came around the corner and picked up most of the cars parked in the parking lot and just carried them away, right, right out of the parking lot, as you're watching it. Who sleeps through that? Unbelievers sleep through that. Don't sleep through that. Wake up. That's what's happening. This world and its institutions are shaky, faltering, and being swept away. He then changes the imagery from a flood to grass at the end of verse 5. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. Quickly sprung up, young, full of life, but dry and gone before you know it. Right now, the valley has a lot of green in it. Uh, in the places where it's not intended to be green. The hills have a lot of green on them because of the wet and the rain. But by May, by May, it's going to be golden, as they say. I like brown, but golden. Charles Spurgeon says this about grass. Blooming with abounding beauty, till the meadows are all bespent with gems. The grass ha- this is your life, by the way the grass has a golden hour, even as man in his youth has a heyday of flowery glory. The scythe ends the blossoming of field flowers, and the dew of night weep their fall. Here is the history of grass: Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. That's your life. That's your life. Sown, grown, blown, moaned, gone. And the history of man is not much more, says Spurgeon. Natural decay would put an end to both, and the gra- uh, to us and the grass in due time. Few, however, are left to experience the full result of age. For death comes with his scythe and removes our life in the midst of our verdure. How great a change and how short a time. The morning saw the blooming, the evening ceased. The withering it's just it's a brief journey you're a sojourner but this is a short journey Thirdly, it's a hard journey. Verses 7 to 11, we've already, you've already got a sense of that. Lest we think that we're hastening unto death, merely sort of out of... Out of that's just how things are. Things break down. The, Psalm, the psalmist stresses that our mortal condition is a judgment executed by God Himself. Look at verse 7. For we have been consumed, not by nature, by your anger and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. This whole undoing, this flood, this withering, this dying, this returning to dust, these are... The many judgments of God upon a sinful people. We've sinned so as to provoke his wrath. God doesn't change, but the dealings of God with people do. God can bring down judgment upon your head and bring your life to a very swift end when you thought that it would go on much longer. God acts for his own glory and he acts against the wicked. In all likelihood, if you think of verse 8, we've been consumed in your anger, and by your wrath we've been dismayed. Moses is writing this to people who saw many extraordinary outbreaks of divine wrath. That the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, comes and kills 20,000 after the sin with the golden calf. And many more thousands uh, later on when they grumbled against Moses and God sent serpents among them to destroy them. And at another time the Levites rose up and killed more than 3,000. many, outbreaks of divine wrath on these people. God their sin was before God. Verse eight You have placed our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's where you don't want your secrets, right out in the light. That's where all your secrets are. Your life is laid bare and open before the eyes of him with whom you have to do and God makes a thorough investigation and scrutiny. There just isn't something you hide from him. Why is life so hard? Because hard, because God knows you very well. Because God knows you very well. Your sins are laid out before him. He sees all. Psalm 103, 30 rather, verse 3. The psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? If you should mark iniquity, the flood of divine judgment will sweep me away forever. That's mankind outside of Christ Jesus. Being carried away, All the while sleeping in a flood of judgment, thinking they last forever, and but they're grass in the morning and withered and brittle by the evening. Verse nine, he brings it back to the numbers. For all of our days have declined in your fury and finished our years like a sigh. We, as it were, go out with a whimper. Thomas Watson says, we come into the world with a cry. We go out of it with a groan. Verse 10 says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or due to strength 80. Now Moses lived to 120. He's saying 80 is going to be the new 120. The Lord is shortening our days so he can shorten our iniquity. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. It is soon gone and we fly away. We have little sayings for this. Here today, gone tomorrow. Yes, that is how it is. Here today, gone tomorrow, flourishing today, out with a whimper tomorrow. Then he says, he says that we're soon gone and soon forgotten. Will this world remember you when you're gone? Do you know the names of your great great grandparents? They lived in the 19th, maybe some of them lived in the early 20th century. Great-great-grandparents. I know the name of my great-grandfather. I know when he was born. I know what year he immigrated to the United States with my great-great-grandfather. I know that he was kicked in the head by a horse in Nebraska in 1877 and died. Um, That's my great-great-grandfather. My great-grandfather moved to Oklahoma. I mean, do you see how, how scant this is? I don't know if he was a good man or a bad man, whether he loved his family or whether he is self-indulgent. I don't know that. I know his name. I know a few years. I know a few dates. I know when he died and the extraordinary way in which he died. I know nothing about his wife, my great-great-grandmother. Very little. I know she remarried. Do you see what I'm after? These are, this is my, these are my people. That's only one part of my family tree. I mean, that's, that's a fourth of it, you know? And I could kind of, what do I know about them? Very little. Even, even if you leave behind a legacy, you're a great painter. What do you know about Michelangelo? Well, okay, Michelangelo, he was something. I mean, he wasn't even a painter, but he painted the Pitt Sistine Chapel. He's a sculptor. Okay, you know a few things about Michelangelo. But the man, the man... soon forgotten. You know where you won't be forgotten? Before God. Before God, you are not forgotten. Before God, there is no forgetting. Before God, there's no he once was. Some of the things that you've done and the ways you are would be blessedly forgotten, I'm sure you know. Not forgotten by him. Forgotten here. Soon forgotten. Soon gone. And then the last question, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Do you really, do you really appreciate what we're talking about here? This flood of judgment of divine fury carrying away people in wrath, that it is so you should see, that you can comprehend it? I suggest not. The only one who knows the fury of God perfectly is God himself because God knows his own holiness perfectly, and so he understands and knows himself perfectly. I'm under judgment, and I'm under a judgment that I can't even hardly begin to understand. That it is so, I know. The depth of it, the perversity of my sin, exactly the measure of its offensiveness against a holy God, I couldn't even really begin to calculate. Spurgeon says, good men dread that wrath beyond conception, but they never ascribe too much terror to it. That's the thing about the wrath of God. You can't exaggerate it. You never overdo it when you speak about the wrath of God against sin. Spurgeon, again, bad men are dreadfully convulsed when they awake with a sense of it, but their horror is not greater than it had need be, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses a hyperbole. Never uses a hyperbole we've been consumed in your fury. That's not exaggeration. That's not poetic license. If anything, it's understatement because human words could never actually equal the statement that needs to be made. Are you getting a sense of it? This is our life. He says that it would be impossible to exaggerate it, Spurgeon says. Whatever feelings of pious awe and holy trembling may move the tender heart, it is never too much moved, Apart from other considerations, the great truth of divine anger, when powerfully felt, never impresses the mind with the solemnity and excess of the legitimate result of such a contemplation. It's a brief journey, and it's a hard journey, because it's a journey under the hand of divine wrath in a world consigned to the curse and on a people who are going to perish forever, unless. And I want to encourage you, there is an Unless. There is a, a way in which this difficulty can be reversed from you, listen, beginning now. Not pie in the sky. Not one day maybe cross your fingers now. This fruitful fruitless life under the curse can begin for you now to be a life worth living. We turn to our last consideration, the way back home the way back home. Look at verse 12 of the psalm. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you or bring to you a heart of wisdom. It's possible. This this is a prayer of hope. This is a petition that gives a little ring of hope in in the midst of doom and gloom, short life, hard life, under the wrath of God. But that is not the end or that need not be the end. He petitions God, but help me to take a right assessment of this life that I might order my days wisely and present to you a heart of wisdom. Look, if, we're, if this world is, a, is under a flood of judgment, then we need to wake up and be wise right now. He prays that God would help him to do that. He first asked God to help him number his days in such a way that he gains a heart of wisdom to bring before the Lord, which kind of seems like an odd request in verse 12. If you look back at verse 10, it says that a man's life is 70 years and if due to strength, 80 years. So why does he say now, teach us to number our days? Didn't he just number them? Normal life expectancy is 70, maybe 80, you know, if you eat your vegetables. Um, maybe 80. Teach us to number our days. Uh, 70 or 80 isn't too much to count but see that that's not i think what he's after you can count your days without accounting for your days do you take my meaning you can know how long and not appreciate the number teach us to number our days is not just lord help me to plan my calendar it's help me to order my heart due to the number take not just counting the number but taking account of the number there's, a, according to Calvin, a shameful stupidity, his words, a shameful stupidity when we fail to take the brevity of life to heart. We can number our days and yet fail to see them for the infinitesimal reality that they are. Calvin says this, it is surely a monstrous thing that men can measure all distances without themselves or outside themselves, but they know not how, they, they, and they know how many feet the moon is distant from the center of the earth what space is between different planets, and in short, that they can measure all the dimensions of both heaven and earth, and yet they cannot number three score and ten years in their own case. Which, by the way, speaks to the sophistication of cosmology in the 16th century. And the point about the sophistication of cosmology in the 16th century is this. Um, you You can take incredible measurements... Of the world and yet totally fail to take an accurate measurement of yourself. It's easier to measure outside than to measure inside. It's easier to know that or the other than it is to know thyself. Know thyself, says the philosopher. That's hard. Know things. I can know things But know this thing, myself, and to measure my days, to measure my moments, to order them wisely in a way that is ordered toward eternity and not just to this life. That's what he's asking the Lord for. No one sets about living rightly without knowing the end of his life, which is death itself. This should lead him to seek a better end, the prize of a heavenly calling. Numbering our days soberly and realistically should cause us to live wisely. Jesus speaks in one place in the Gospels in Luke 12 of a man who sought to be rich in this life. Not rich toward God, not laying up treasure in heaven, but rich in this life. And He imagined that He had many years of pleasure ahead of Him. And you remember this. He said He planned to tear down His barn and build bigger barns because He planned to be here for a long time rich with this world's goods. He was rich in the things of this world, but He was not rich in the things of God. Moreover, He was foolish because this very night... His life was required of him. You can plan for this life. You should be wise and you should make provision and you should plan and you should spend less than you make Um, and you should be frugal. And there are all sorts of proverbs we could turn to for how to live wisely in this world. But it's not wise if you are living ultimately for this world. This world is a stopping off place. This world is not where our home is forever. Plan accordingly. Plan accordingly. In verse 3 of this text, we read this Return, O. You say to. uh, You turn man back to dust and say, Return, O children of men. Look at verse 13. Now he wants to flip it around. He says, Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? It's an interesting play on words. In verse 3, God says to wicked men, Return to the dust. Here, the psalmist says, Return to us. You say to us, return to the dust. We say to you, O Lord, return to us. Don't send us away from yourself. Rather, come near to us. In in Isaiah 63, in verse 10, because of Israel's rebellion, we read of God, therefore he turned to be their enemy, and and he himself fought against them. Then in verse 17 of Isaiah 63, the psalmist says, return for the sake of your servants. So God turns away. And returns his people to dust. And the, and the prophet says, Return for the sake of your servants. And then in Isaiah 64, 1, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Lord, if you don't come to us, if you don't return to us, we will be swept away forever in the flood of your judgment. Oh, Lord, return to your people for the sake of your servant. Now's the question. That's how things get set right for you. If God comes to you, if he returns to you. The question is, Does he do so? This is a return. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Remember when he did this? He looked down, and he saw the suffering of the people of Egypt. He says, I've heard the cries and the groaning of the people of Egypt, and I've come down to save them. And now we're on the other side of that, and you know what? The people didn't learn their lesson, and they're still wandering after idols, and they're still grumbling at God's provision. And the, and the same Moses who led them out says again, "Oh, return! Oh, come down! You know what we need, though? We need a redemption greater than the redemption of the Exodus. God redeemed those people from Egypt, and from the gods of Egypt, and how did they return the favor? Three Three months, not even three months out, and they built a golden calf and fell down and worshiped it. Shortly after, grumbling and complaining about food provision, not believing the Lord with regard to taking Canaan as their promised land, all sorts of unbelief, disobedience, griping, complaining, and idolatry all through the wilderness wandering. And, he, and Moses says, What again? Come back again. You came once to deliver us. We need a greater exodus. We need a greater deliverance. We need something that will deal not just with our external condition. We need a return of the Lord that will deal with our hearts. Our hearts. Return, O Lord, says Moses, who had already seen the Lord, come down to save. He says, in effect, come down again. Isaiah in Isaiah 64.1 says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. In Matthew 3, Jesus goes to the waters of baptism. John the Baptist tries to stop him and says, I can't even untie your sandal and you come to be baptized by me. You should be baptizing me, not me, you. And Jesus says to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John baptized him. Listen to what he says. He says, And behold, the heavens were opened... And he saw the Spirit alighting in the form of a dove coming down on Christ Jesus, and he heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I submit to you that that's actually what the prophet's seeking in Isaiah 64.1. I think that's what Moses is seeking here. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? You ready? There's an answer to it. In the fullness of time. Galatians 4. In the fullness of time. How long will it be? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? That he might redeem those who are under the law. Because the law doesn't save... But the one born under the law who kept it for you saves. This is the one who can make your life worth living. This is the one who can teach you how to number your days. This is the one who can teach you a heart of wisdom. He came to save a people who would, without his intervention, be carried away in that flood of God's judgment. He places himself in the midst of that flood that he might pull you out of it. Now, beginning now, oh, that you would come. Listen to what Jesus himself says in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And listen to this, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Your question, the question you should ask is, how can he be my dwelling place in this generation? If he returns and comes, well, has he done it? He's done it. He's done it in the person of his own son. He has come and tabernacled among us and pitched his tent among men and said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You may be in a flood of judgment, drowning. If you want rest and if you want rescue, come to Jesus now. If you want to get home, come to Jesus. He came to pitch the tent of God with man. He is the tent of God with man. Seek him. Verses 14 and 15. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad. Listen to this. Not in the future one day maybe. That's not what the text says. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. In other words, satisfy us soon. Satisfy us now. Give me rest for my soul now that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days starting today. Make us glad according to the days that you've afflicted us in the years that we've seen evil. Um, Luke says that Christ is the, the day star that has dawned, the light from heaven that has broken forth. The morning has broken and God has come down in the person of his son and dwelt among his people that he might remove his wrath from us. He's come that you might have joy and that you might have it more abundantly. That's what Jesus himself says. You know what that is? That's God's answer to this psalm. That is is Moses saying, make us glad. And God says in the person of Christ Jesus, be glad. Paul says that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and that through Him is our amen to the glory of God. Listen. Your life is short, your life is brief, your life is hard, and there's a flood of judgment carrying all the sons of time away to an eternal position, but it need not go on this way. There is a rescue that is offered to you that will remove you out of that flood of judgment and give you gladness now, that will give you a stake in eternity beginning now. Finally, the last consideration of the psalm, verses 16 and 17. So what about my daily work? What about this life. Do we just simply sort of isolate ourselves from the world and do nothing waiting for the rescue boat? Listen to this. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let us see your hand at work. Let us see you doing what you do. Give us eyes to see. Give our children eyes to see. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord God be up, our God be upon us and then this is an interesting statement, and confirm to us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. In other words, don't let my life be for nothing. My life is short. My life is brief. I was born yesterday. I'll die today if I make it. I'll die tomorrow if I make it through today. Um, I'm here for a while, but let me, let me do something that matters and that counts for eternity. Matthew 6.20 says that you're blessed if you lay up treasure in heaven. You know when you start laying up treasure in heaven? Now. Now. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and apply that to your life comprehensively, and you will be laying up treasure in a place where that will not be taken away from you. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen to this, knowing that your toil is not in vain, key though, in the Lord. Whatever you do, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. That matters. That's doing something that actually counts for eternity that's doing something that shines the light of heaven to the people around you. When you eat or drink or do whatever you do to the glory of God, you are an emissary of heaven in a wicked and dark and perishing age. That matters. That counts. That draws others to Christ Jesus and to the gospel. Finally, a text from John's Apocalypse, Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead, who blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, listen to this line, for their deeds follow with them. This life is brief, this life is short, but this life is not worthless. This is a life worth living, and the work you do is worth doing. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all the glory of God, because those, those are the things that show that glory, the glory of eternal life has dawned in you, that it's begun in you. May God's favor rest on us as we pass through this life to the next. May these days, short as they are, be full of joy in the service of the Lord, and may He confirm to each of us the work of His hands. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the yes to all the promises, that He is the answer to all the longings and of all the prayers, that He's the one who came and took on Himself the wrath that was due to us and bore away that punishment from us, giving us Joy, an abundance of joy, an eternal life, even begun in us now. We bless you. We thank you for Him. I pray for any in this place who do not know you, who have not trusted your Son and His death and His resurrection to save them from their sins, that this would be the day of salvation, that this would be the day that they wake up uh, in the midst of the flood, that this would be the day in which they call you their eternal dwelling place. Lord, we pray that you would do that work in your hearts. And for those of us who have trusted you already, Lord, we pray that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts to go on in that faith, uh, even for all the days that you've appointed for us. Lord, help us to do this to the praise of your glorious name. Amen. I'll ask you to look up and receive the blessing of the Lord as we go from this service. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.